0: SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing Show 62 with guest Paul Larson. Our guest today is Paul Larson. Paul is a principal researcher in the database group at Microsoft Research. Paul's research is in the area of database systems, focusing on main memory databases, column store technology, query processing, and query optimization. So welcome, Paul. Thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, what, I'll, what i do with everyone uh, first up is just explain how did you ever come to get involved with SQL Server in the first place?
1: Well, that's a fairly long story, but uh, let me start out by saying I came from academia mm-hmm. where I was working on uh, database research. Uh, joined Microsoft Research in 1996 and yep. has worked uh, on and off with uh, the SQL Server Group and uh, uh, quite closely over the last five years, both on our column store uh, improvements and on Hackathon.
0: Mm, indeed. Actually, one, one question I have with that is, how closely do the research and product groups work together? Because I'm um, I'm sort of mindful, many, many years ago, uh, in, in another lifetime, I was sort of working with HP, and I was also uh, doing work in academia at the time, but I, I just remember the very, very strong relationship between that, and it's not something I see in a lot of companies, and I'm just wondering, uh, how much does that happen and how effective is that at present?
1: Uh- it varies. It varies uh, from time to time and from group to group. Uh, I mean, I've had projects that I haven't been all that closely related, directly related to uh, to a product group. But this particular one, I worked very, very closely with the uh, the product group for for uh, the last five years.
0: Yep. Excellent. And so, look, what I'm sort of noticing here is. Uh, I suppose this is the the version of the product where there's been a a fairly radical shift in some of the internal capabilities. And so, what are the things that you felt sort of caused us to need to have that?
1: Well, it was quite clear uh, even five years ago that we could not stay uh, much longer with the traditional SQL Server architecture. I mean, it's uh, it's an architecture that is about what 30 years old by now. Yes and hasn't fundamentally changed but the underlying hardware platform has changed and is continuing to change so we just couldn't imagine going ahead and and staying with the same architecture for another 20 years Mm. it just wouldn't
0: yeah what what in particular in the underlying hardware do you think has had the biggest effect there uh
1: the really biggest effect is definitely uh much larger main memories uh, you've, got yeah. res- you've got to remember back in the early '80s uh, when when the architecture of, of, of the main uh, commercial database systems were designed. Well, memories were very very small. Disk weren't all that big either, but that was the only place you could actually store the amount of data that you needed. So we basically had to come up with more or less a paging kind of system. Yeah. So it was optimized for under the assumption that data lived on disk and you occasionally bring it in when you need to do something with it well
0: yeah that that seems to be to me yeah to be the shift isn't it it's sort of we had small amounts of memory we would bring things into memory off disk to do the processing but we didn't have much room to have much of it there so so and and really what that meant though as well i suppose is of course that This is why we were so bound to the io in terms of it being a bottleneck most of the time absolutely
1: i mean that was the big problem how how to reduce the number of ios that you had to do Mm. now with plenty of of, uh, main memory you just uh, turn that assumption on your head and say well the data is most of the time going to live in memory so Let's optimize for that case. And if we have to put it on disk, well, if it's going to cost us a little bit more to actually get it to disk and from disk, so be it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think, how much do you think that's also driven not just by the amount of memory, though, but by the compression technologies that have appeared?
1: Uh, I don't think the compression technologies have had uh, that dramatic an effect. Mm-hmm.
0: I was thinking more in terms of the memory-based compression uh, like uh, column stores and things like this, I'm just wondering what effect that has. Is when I look at things like data warehouses, the approach now more and more seems to be to pull the whole thing into memory, compress the life out of it, and, and then do everything almost by brute force.
1: Oh, definitely, but that doesn't uh, really matter. What, I mean, it's, it's more urgent. If you, if you imagine that you're going to store all of your uh, data warehouse data in memory, yes, then you have to worry yeah. about compression. But even if you store store it on disk and bring it in or uh, occasionally do some caching version of it, uh, you want to, to to compress it in any case. Hmm. Reduce the amount of data that you have to transfer and the amount of data sure. that you have to scan. It's not just a matter of saving space, it's also a matter of saving yeah. time.
0: No, that that that's excellent. And so now in terms of with uh, t- SQL Server 2014 and the Hecaton story, so what are the fundamental changes uh, you felt have been made there?
1: Oh, it's very, it's very, very fundamental changes. Right? The mm-hmm. the architecture of Hecaton is completely optimized for mem memory and for large numbers of cores because that's what the future uh, holds. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, what's the name Hecaton? Hecaton means a hundred. Nothing else, 100 in Greek. And that was sort of the aspirational goal that we uh, we set for ourselves. We didn't expect that we would reach that. But what it meant is that it forced us to rethink everything from uh, from the ground up. Mm. Just couldn't reach into uh, the old tool bag and say, okay, well, here is this, uh, this trick that we have used for many years.
0: Yeah. No. Another little tweak that we could apply. Yeah, yeah. so it's sort of if I'm aiming for something really, really high, I have to rethink everything I'm doing.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Mm. And if you want to go uh, 100 times faster, that means that you have to get rid of 99% of the instructions. And get everything that's, a, done. that's
0: a great way of putting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> and it just highlights the fact that it
1: is very, very hard, and you can't do it by tweaking existing mechanisms.
0: Mm. And so what what are the main design changes that had to happen to allow that?
1: Well, so first of all, the, uh, the uh, data we store, uh, the way we store data in memory is optimized for the, uh, the assumption that it lives in memory. So we, we, it's not a disk-optimized structure. We use, we use B-trees as one of the indexing structure, but it's a version of B-trees completely optimized for, for in-memory data mm-hmm. and, and so on. So that's the first thing. And uh, the point is that you can use uh, completely different data structures, and you don't have to worry about uh, pages and uh, latching pages and searching on pages and so on. So it's actually that is actually much faster. The other fundamental change is uh, that we use uh, only log-free data structures. And that's mm-hmm. that's guided by the fact that we expect to uh, run machines with lots of cores and then a traditional sort of latching type of approach just won't scale it
0: simply yeah and so and mostly is that previously because you're also uh, often holding those latches or or in picked locks for longer periods because you're waiting on IOs to occur and you're now presuming that most of those things happen very fast?
1: Well, you have to distinguish between latches and locks.
0: Right? Sure.
1: Latches are, are these short-term things that you use to protect uh, changes to data, internal data structures. Yep. But locks are, are logical, uh, that you protect uh, transactions against each other. Uh, even though you think of latches as being a very short-term, mm-hmm. across law, strikes very hard when you are running, say, 100 cores conc- uh, concurrently. Yep. It's and very...
0: And, and so, yeah, so the, the, the more things that are happening concurrently with that, the more collisions that are occurring all the time. The more
1: collisions you're going to have, right. You're going to be... The, your throughput is completely going to be determined by the the how long you spend time in these critical sections. And even... 1% or 2% of your time spent in critical sections is severely going to limit your scalability.
0: Mm-hmm. And so is there a big push to, obviously then to, I remember I used to do a lot of operating system internals, and yeah, the size of the critical regions were always the thing that would determine the overall responsiveness of the operating system in a lot of ways. And so are the, are the critical regions like quite small in SQL Server now?
1: Well, in Hecaton, I mean, you have the, the, the classical SQL Server engine, and, of course, that's being improved, but yep. we're talking about Hekaton here. In Hekaton, mm. there is only one critical section, mm-hmm. and that critical section is, well, no, let me be a little bit more precise. Yep. In the core Hecaton in, engine itself, there is only one critical section, and that critical section is one instruction lock.
0: <laughs>
1: right now, awesome. There are other critical sections because we are uh, when we are interfacing with with parts of the traditional SQL Server engine. For example, the log. Mm-hmm. There are latches in there, and so on, and those, of course, remain. Yep. But in the Core Hecaton engine. There are there is only one critical section.
0: Hmm. And of course, so uh, I suppose that leads into the logging changes. And so um, clearly, the logging has fundamentally changed in terms of uh, when using the Hecaton structures. Uh, you're aiming for a different style of logging. Uh, yes.
1: Yes. Uh, there. There's, there's how the Hekathon logging is designed, and then you have the issue of, well, so how is it integrated with SQL Server? Mm-hmm. So the hackathon, um, the hackathon logs only changes to user data. It doesn't yep. log any changes to indices or anything else. It just changes to user data. And... Uh, it doesn't write log records at all while a transaction is running. It only writes out all the changes in, in one go when we've determined that the transaction is actually ready to commit. Mm-hmm. And aborted transaction, log nothing.
0: Yeah, I think actually that's something I find a lot of people don't get with the current uh, or sorry, the now previous uh, versions of SQL Server is the degree of logging uh, where people, I think, think it's only just the, the committed data that's being written to the log but nope. but there's just this endless stream of things going out to the log Exactly,
1: exactly, all changes to indices and so on uh, uh, are written out and they're, they're trickled out while the transaction is running mm. in, in sort of bits and pieces and we do it in one single log write at the end
0: Mm. Is there anything more efficient about how that log write itself is done as well? Well, uh, given the fact you know the whole outcome at that point. The,
1: yes and no. There is uh, a significant difference is that that hackathon per se doesn't require any particular order. It doesn't rely on any on the ordering in the log itself. Hmm because uh... the serialization order is completely determined by uh... by the uh... end timestamps for transaction Yep. so we can in principle parallelize log writes to our host content and just spray them out on on any number of devices we just need to get it off to uh, persistent storage somewhere mm-hmm. so that's how it is how that logging, so, logging is designed for hackathon now yep. Uh, of course, in the, uh, in, in the actual implementation, we decided then that we are actually going to log to the to the traditional SQL Server log to give users uh, a completely sort of transparent recovery story. You just recover SQL Server and everything is taken care of, didn't change at all. Didn't want to have users to, to worry about an additional set of log files for, for hackathon and try to manage those.
0: Yeah, and and, and that's good because it, it, yeah, I think one of the beauties of what's been done with the product is how well it sort of integrates with the existing structures that were there, and what I see with a lot of other databases that are trying to take advantage of in-memory technologies, you may have to make the choice between having an in-memory database or a traditional product, and at least with this, people can sort of move... Table by table, or um, or bit of functionality at a time, across as, as it makes sense. Oh yes, I
1: mean we had we had uh, once we um, the in the earlier days of the projects, uh, once we had convinced ourselves that we could actually build a fast uh, in-memory uh, database engine. The question is, well, in what form are we going to ship it? It's a separate mm. product, uh, or are we going to try to integrate it to SQL Server? Now, shipping as a separate product would have been much, much easier. Yeah. (laughs) But uh, that clearly was not uh, what was preferred from customer's point of view. As you said, customers want an integrated story. They don't want to have a a second uh, system to worry about. Yeah. And and so on. So uh, the decision was to integrate it into SQL Server, and I can tell you that's been an, an enormous amount of work. On, mm. on part of the uh, development
0: team. Yeah, now it looks it, it looks huge in terms of what's actually been done there in terms of the structure. I suppose from somebody who's coding point of view and the things that they need to think differently about when writing code to run against that style of engine.
1: Uh, are you now talking about application writers? or? Are you Apple,
0: well, yeah, I suppose people writing uh, T-SQL and or... Uh, I suppose now they are obviously native stored procs as well. Right. Well, one
1: big difference uh, is that we are using optimistic concurrency control. Mm -hmm. So there are two things you need to pay attention to as an application writer because of that. One is the transaction may abort at a somewhat higher rate than you are used to from traditional SQL Server. Traditional SQL Server, a, a transaction can abort because of deadlocks. Mm. But you may see, uh, uh, especially in high contention situations, you may see more abort. So your application should be uh, should be designed to deal with aborted transactions and
0: retry,
1: mm. you can just retry. Yeah,
0: and again, there are a thing that I see as well that. When people first design applications, they don't tend to see many, but as the concurrency increases, uh, they can exponentially increase if yes. they haven't paid attention to this. Yeah.
1: And the other part is well, a Hackathon is designed uh, for short transactions. Mm-hmm. You have long read transactions. They are just fine because we're using uh, multi versioning, so they will read older read the versions. They don't interfere with uh, with anybody else. Uh, but update transactions should be short and and sort of single shot transactions
0: hmm and so actually that's uh, an interesting thing in that uh w- what changes in this regard in terms of isolation levels
1: well we support Egadon currently supports uh three uh, uh uh isolation levels uh snapshot isolation repeatable read and serializable Mm-hmm. Uh, we can support all the isolation level that that SQL Server currently supports, but those are the three that we went with uh, yeah. in, this, in this release.
0: How, how much of an impact do you think serializable is in this sort of scenario?
1: Well, one of the good things is, uh, which is very different from what you have elsewhere in SQL Server and that you have a yep. key locking system, is that the cost? If you, if you, if a transaction requests a higher uh, isolation level, the only transaction that pays for that is that that particular transaction. Nobody else is impacted. Mm-hmm. It means that that transaction uh, has to do a, 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 a bit more work. Yeah. So if you run, for example, at snapshot uh, isolation. Uh, there is no validation, there are no locks, there is nothing. If you're right. Yeah,
0: that's awesome, yeah, because I must admit in existing things, one of the, if we do see things like a lot of deadlocks, one of the very first things we often go looking for is things that are using serializable that actually don't need to be because Mm -hmm. uh, there are many, many things, like in fact, uh, I think uh, component services when you install DLLs, defaults to serializable yeah, yeah. Uh, You know things like BizTalk adapters all default to serializable there's just so many of these things that people install today that default to serializable and yet that has such a big impact at the back end right,
1: well uh, so so for snapshot isolation uh, as I said there's no locking, no latching, nothing for mm-hmm. readable read but, uh, at before the transaction commits it goes and checks the timestamps of all the records that it read yep to make sure that they have not been updated mm-hmm. sounds expensive but in in reality it isn't because those records that you just read most likely are sitting in your cache in any case
0: yeah exactly
1: they, they haven't gone anywhere so it's just checking in the cache if you if you uh, request serializable, Then, in addition to checking the timestamps of the records that you read, uh, we also repeat your scans Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and check, well, has any new record showed up that you're supposed to see? Yeah. And that is admittedly a little bit more expensive, but again, it's Mm. only the transaction that requested that pays for it.
0: Yeah, that's excellent, because that's right. In, uh, to avoid uh, phantom reads and things in the existing one, yeah, where we do, uh, for people not familiar, maybe we read, give me the values from 5 to 10, right. and we, would, we don't want that to change. In the previous thing, it would actually lock it so that somebody can't now insert 8 exactly. when it wasn't there before, and that has an effect on, every, on the other people exactly. you know, rather than on this. Yeah.
1: The term I like to, to use. use is that we are not penalizing innocent bystanders.
0: I love that. That's great. (laughs) In fact, yeah, that's a huge thing, being able to uh, improve the – because, again, I think a lot of the applications, the reason they dive straight into Serializable is that they want the most consistent view of the database that they can get. Yeah, pretty much without caring about other other users or innocent bystanders. Right. And so this architecture completely changes that equation in terms of you pay the cost rather than them paying the cost. Exactly.
1: And if, mm. if you have read-only transactions, well, snapshot isolation will give you a consistent view of the world.
0: Yeah. And so is there much uh, penalty with snapshot isolation there, or is it just following... The versions are kept, and it follows the version chain.
1: Or? Uh, no, we don't actually change versions together. A lot of people mm-hmm. understand why, <laughs> why we don't have to do that. We, but we don't.
0: Yeah.
1: Instead, what we do is we carry in each record uh, two timestamps: a begin timestamp and an end timestamp.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And every transaction has a, uh, a a read time. So, a snapshot isolation: you get you you take uh, the read time is. Uh, is uh, the time when the transaction starts, and uh, when you scan down, say uh, uh, a hash chain, uh, you first check the timestamps to see: well, is does 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 the valid time for this record intersect with my uh, my read time?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If it doesn't, then ignore it because I'm not supposed to see this one.
0: Ah, that's it. So it's basically. I start, I know what I'm supposed to look at, and basically if something else, in the meantime, then I just ignore it anyway.
1: Exactly. You won't even see it.
0: Yeah, that's awesome.
1: The lowest level of the system will just skip it for you. Mm. So,
0: yes. Yeah. Now, what you were saying there as well, though, is that the application itself needs to deal with... Well, well, I suppose because it's so concurrent, uh, and uh, assuming sort of optimistic concurrency, that the number of failures related to that could improve, increase.
1: Uh, it could. Again, our fallback always, if something goes wrong, is well, we abort the transaction, and and uh, and uh, then you need to restart it.
0: Yeah, but again, it's the client that needs to do that.
1: It's a client to do that. You can either do
0: yeah. it straight
1: in the application, or you can uh, you can write sort of a, a, an outer stored procedure that is a, a, mm. a regular SQL Server stored procedure that does the uh, the uh, the retry.
0: Yeah, indeed. Yeah, I see both approaches today in and around deadlocks. It's, uh, I mean, again, there's a lot of that you can handle within the stored proc, but I I also think. Uh, people need to think about doing these things at the client level as well because, you know, I look at things like high availability system failovers and things like that that, again, yeah, they need to deal with somewhere and that's going to be back at the client regardless.
1: Exactly, yeah. On the failover, currently uh, uh, you typically lose some transactions and the client needs to be able to deal with that, right? Yeah.
0: Now, I think one of the other things that's sort of interesting in here is it introduces the concept of sort of non-durable data in a much more formal way, where you've got a type of table where you're basically just maintaining the schema on failure. And what what was the key thinking around that?
1: Oh, uh, that really was came from some of the early customers that we were talking to. Uh, that uh, it would be great. They have lots of lots of cases where the data doesn't need to be durable. They they can afford mm. to lose it think of it for example in uh, in an ETL kind of uh, workflow yeah right where you have intermediate data well if you lose it for some reason you can always rerun the workflow
0: mm. yeah look I, c- I can think of yeah lots of scenarios where we would use this actually the uh, uh, I think back about applications we had where even licensing wise we used to track who was currently connected to our application uh, for licensing purposes exactly. but uh, if the, yeah, if the server restarted, the first thing we were always doing is having a startup proc that went and cleared that because we were actually storing it in a table. And so the idea of a table that when this restarts, all the data just vanishes, that's, uh, that's actually really, really useful for things like that.
1: Exactly. And, I mean, everybody who has worked for a while with uh, various applications have run into these kind of scenarios where it doesn't need to be persisted.
0: Mm. Oh, as I was saying, even more so, that you actually sometimes don't want it. You you simply don't want it to be persistent. Yeah, yeah, like at all. True. Yeah, no, that's a huge thing. And so uh, now I suppose the next thing is then the the native stored proc. So I suppose we should talk about the table structures too, that when you create a table, uh, this is then running off and basically creating a DLL or equivalent under the covers. And so this sort of limits a bit in terms of what you can do with changes to the table... But it, but it sort of is basically just defining the structures for the table that will live in memory?
1: It defines the structures. It also creates an, uh, um, a number of callback procedures because uh, because the heckathon engine itself, of course, uh, has no idea how, how the records are structured and where the mm. various fields are. So you need uh, access to the fields and so on. Uh you need uh, a way of comparing keys, for example. So that's that's one callback function. Yep. Uh, if you're using a hash index, you need uh, you need a hash function. What what are you mm-hmm. compute the hash function over, and what is the hash function, and so on. So it's a bunch yeah. of these uh, auxiliary callback procedures that are needed uh, uh, when 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 you actually run queries. And then there are the um, the the, uh, pers- the functions that are needed for interop, with meaning when you when you uh, scan a hackathon table, say from uh, from a regular SQL server query, mm-hmm. there is an operator at the bottom that needs to scan the table and understand what the where the fields are and where you can find them. Yeah. And
0: we should mention, yeah, that's right, that if you come from T-SQL, there's an interop layer that needs to get you into this in-memory structure. As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia Pacific and US UK time zones in particular the first course that's offered in this series is query performance tuning you'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com now that that's great and so and in terms of altering a table then this really means that we're fundamentally just replacing that
1: yes that's basically what it needs at least
0: today yes and excellent yeah oh yes I I like yes today yes indeed that's good the um, and so then if we're then having code accessing this we have the ability to come from a traditional proc through the interop layer or we have the ability to create code that itself then gets compiled as native code right and so has there been a real challenge? I'm imagining this has been a case of uh, rewriting almost every function and things that lives outside in T-SQL land into uh, or, or, or migrating that into something that can then be done inside this native mode. Um, it's,
1: it's, it's mixed. I mean, mm. uh, when you say compile into native code, yes, but you don't necessarily compile every uh, last bit. If you have a uh, sort of a fairly generic function, uh, you don't necessarily want to generate code for that every time. You write it as function mm-hmm. that you call, yep. and that's just part of the system. So there's plenty of those functions that that are just called from the native code and are in the uh, what we call runtime or mm-hmm. Uh There are also uh, sometimes it actually calls out to uh SQL Server to functions, traditional SQL Server functions. Uh, and that's that's for functions that are quite complicated and you have to be very careful to retain full compatibility with uh, with the classical engine. Yeah. So you don't want to necessarily rewrite them. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so they're,
0: they're un- oh, and so they're basically just left as calls to the internal existing code in that case. Exactly, exactly. Mm. Okay, and so now each of these uh, stored PROCs, that, um, when we build that as a PROC and then compile that again, we end up effectively with a DLL for that as well. Right. Correct. Cool. Now, what, uh, what sort of limitations and things do you think there are at present in terms of what we can do inside that? compared to uh riding traditional stored procs.
1: Well, there there is a fair amount of, of limitations in in this first version and yes, you yep. are aware of it. Um, an analogy I like to use so let me let me repeat that is yep. we know that eventually we are going to build uh, a skyscraper out of yep. Uh if you know that you're going to build a skyscraper, you have to make sure that you have the foundation right. Mhm. Well, what that meant is that we had to invest so much in building the foundation that we could only afford to build the first few floor of the skyscraper.
0: Yeah, indeed. And it's time, too. It's time as well. Oh, yes. Oh, yes.
1: I mean, uh, time to market is a feature.
0: Yes, it absolutely is. Right.
1: So we are fully aware of of the limitation in the SQL server in in the T-SQL surface area. But that will uh, uh, be expanded as as rapidly as we can.
0: Yeah, I, I noticed through the pre-release phase, it it's, it just kept increasing nonstop. The surface area for that it's been good. Yeah, it
1: it did, it did. But right now, the surface area we think is sufficient for for a lot of overlap type of applications. Yeah, we know mm. it's not for everybody, but um, it was r- quite carefully selected. Hmm, yeah, no, that's great. But now, listen, one of the discussions... your favorite feature is going to be in there.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, indeed. Listen, one of the, the discussions I uh, we often get into is uh, a lot of people have been trying to sort of push to not have procs, and sort of you see more where people are trying to say, oh, you know, anything... Uh, people are trying to remove procs out of their applications, and then uh, I'm not a fan of that, but I, I do hear that a lot, and I just sort of wonder... Do you think this changes that a little bit in terms of you know, you're going to get better performance now literally by having procs in there in many of these cases? Yes,
1: yes. Uh, I also think it, it is, uh, is a bad idea, and specifically for, for, for um the worst... No, how should I explain it? The, the worst applications for Hackathon is are very chatty application. Mm. Interact with the database server many, many, many times and just ask for trivial things. Yeah, because then uh, the, the 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 part that Hadoop can actually accelerate is so small that it doesn't really matter. You all spend your mm. time coming in and
0: out. Yeah, yeah. The the interaction and the round trip is the thing that's uh, way too expensive. Exactly. It's, uh, I, I often see. Um, it's one of the challenges we see where people are moving to azure sql database and there's this sort of perception that you can just sort of point your connection string there and it'll just go but mm-hmm. but but that's true in many many cases but the minute you have applications that are incredibly chatty that that uh, that incredibly highlights that i i saw an application a little while ago where it was a windows app but from the minute they started it to when the first screen came up, they'd done like 90,000 remote procedure calls, and uh, you know, adding that sort of latency in the middle, you know, that that could that could take two weeks to start up, you know, instead of a few seconds. I mean, it's a tribute to SQL Server that it could could do all that within a few seconds when they're when they're closely connected. But but yeah, I often um, one of the things I used to love is that. Uh, I was that a place years ago where they used to get people doing web development mm-hmm. uh, and instead of having the web server on the box where the SQL server was they made them connect with a dial-up modem okay. um, yeah. <laughs> so at least that way they became very painfully aware of every call they made to the database yeah.
1: Right, right. so I mean there's no reason not to push application logic into to the, the database server Uh, now because we run it at native code speed.
0: Yeah. And I think, look, the the other reason, I I actually am a fan of having at least one layer of abstraction inside the database anyway, because uh, for me it's a a big thing with agility. I go into organizations all the time where the people looking after the database feel they can never change anything. And and the reason is they have no visibility into the code whatsoever that's touching it. And it'll be... Act, you know, it'll be access databases and Excel spreadsheets and reporting services reports and integration services packages, everything that's just got T-SQL embedded all through it. And yeah, the minute they go to change anything, they know somebody's going to scream at them, but they just have no idea who. Right, right. And so, yeah, I, I always like to have that sort of. at least one layer sitting in there anyway, which I can also then wrap uh, tests around, of course. And, uh, again, that's the other advantage to me, is that I can make a change, run a whole series of tests, and I don't have to run every spreadsheet, every report, every whatever, and still know that I haven't broken things. Yeah, right, right. Now, another big change have you been involved with the uh, the clustered column store changes in this version
1: yes i've been involved with the I had a feeling you would have <laughs> ever since it started
0: yep and so in 2012 i thought it was a really interesting technology but uh, the the fact that once we built that in place i suppose there were two issues when we put it in place the table became read only so it meant that updating we ended up having to do a lot of fiddling with petitions and switching petitions and all that sort of thing right. and the other big one seemed to be uh, it was fairly difficult to get the queries into batch mode rather than raw mode and of course both of those things seemed to have been addressed in this in this version.
1: Exactly it was, yes we were fully aware of the, the, the limitations of the column store index in, in SQL 2012 but that was again uh, all we had Time to do at that mm-hmm. for that release, and we really wanted it to get out uh, to sort of plant a stake in the ground.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, and uh, for a lot of people, it actually was very helpful. But oh, there, yes. for other users, yes, the fact that you couldn't update them and that you had to be uh, you had to squint just right to get batch processing to work mm-hmm. uh, was a problem for some. Yeah. But that a lot of that has been addressed now in in, in this release with a mm. uh, clustered column store.
0: Yeah, it must. Uh, this in itself is going to have to make a huge difference to simply the size of a lot of the data warehouses. Where, I mean, previously to use it, you had the original data and then you had the uh, a non-clustered column store index sitting beside it. Where at least now, uh, and that often was a fraction of the size of the original data and of course with a clustered one that that can now actually be the data exactly exactly
1: so that helps with uh, with the total cost and the amount of storage that you have to buy and so on so yeah it's a thing
0: now in terms of achieving the updatability of that I gather that's uh, from my looking at it is done via delta tables and so on how tricky was that to put in place uh...
1: conceptually it was not tricky Mm-hmm. I mean, column stores have, have been around for a long time, and uh, there are a few approaches that work. And they've been around long enough that it's really hard to to greatly innovate on mm-hmm. sort of a conceptual level. Uh, so it was a matter of, of choosing uh, uh, what trade offs you were willing to make and what to put emphasis on. So we settled for, for this solution with uh, with Delta Stores. Yep uh because building uh, uh building these uh these column store segments and so on is a pretty expensive process mm. and uh, updating them is prohibitively prohibitively expensive so that, yeah. that you just couldn't do
0: how how much of an impact is there though in having to both check it and check the delta stores or do you somehow sort of try and pull it's, it's, the two together here? Uh, yeah. Oh, it's, it's
1: for 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 typical data warehouse queries that scan many, many, many millions of rows. Yes. Uh, the the checking, the del- reading, final reading, the Delta store is not even at the noise level.
0: Yeah, that's good. And But this is important, though, that the presumption in that is that the amount of stuff in the Delta store will be a small percentage of the... Of the size of the table itself.
1: Yes. Any so, delta stores are created on demand, and when a delta store, as soon as it exceeds uh, one million rows, it gets compressed right away. Mm.
0: Yeah. And but what I was, I suppose, getting at is that if somebody wanted to do an update right across the whole table, well, that 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 would suddenly become a much more painful operation. Yes. Of course, it is. Uh, you
1: can do it. You can do it. Uh, it's not really, how should I put it? If you do an update across a complete table, yes, that is an mm. expensive operation. But yeah. perhaps then that table should be in your data warehouse.
0: That's right. Yeah, that's a questionable operation to be doing in the first place. Right. Yeah. And listen, the other thing that uh, appeared in this version was uh, the column store archive compression right strategy as well i'm just sort of wondering the sort of things that are different i noticed that uh in my own testing it does seem to drop it down another few percent um and sometimes even uh, a bit more than that again in terms of the size of the data um what uh, i'm just sort of wondering like uh is it slower again to update or something i'm just sort of wondering why no no that no. isn't the default I suppose. no
1: it's not slower to update no not at all not at mm-hmm. because the the column segments um once they are created are immutable we don't change them yep uh, updates are are, are are basically having a, a bitmap on the side that can mask out rows say when you're scanning mm-hmm. ignore this row
0: oh okay so yeah so don't actually yeah, and yeah. because it's been updated elsewhere
1: been updated and the new version yep. got put into the delta store and maybe in in some other uh, column segment now Hmm. So it's just basically logically deleted by by uh, adding something to uh, to uh, bitmap yep,
0: to the bitmap. Yeah. Right. And so what's different then about the, the column store archive strategy as opposed to the column store?
1: Oh, it's it's basically on the way when it's being written out to disk, uh, you apply essentially a zip on it. The ah. Same algorithm, uh, it's our own implementation on it. So you just, mm-hmm. just run that across each uh, each segment before you write it out to disk.
0: Ah, so literally, that's just an additional operation on the persisting of that of that row segment. Uh, the right. yeah, uh, all the uh, pieces for that particular column segments. Yeah, right. And what? Interesting. And how how efficient is that in terms of uh, the? It 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 doesn't add very much. Yeah, I was going to say because you you it's already. Uh, the things done at the column level are, are are pretty spectacular in terms of the degree that it's sort of uh, compressed that down so yeah well it it I mean it
1: varies on data, but you can see it, uh, shrinking by fifty percent or so is is a, mm. not unusual in some cases you see less yeah but it it does, help. it does help
0: so where where do you pay for that? you pay for that just when that segment's loaded? You pay. You pay first of all when it's written out the
1: first time you create it, and it's yes, done. and then you uh, then you pay for it when you bring it in to memory. Yep. Uh, now,
0: <clears throat> but, but the in-memory version is the standard column store. It's exactly. only the persisted version is the archive.
1: Yep. And uh, and those so in-memory we have um, uh, new cache where we store these column segments. So they don't. They're not stored in the buffer pool. Mm. So, and that's just a regular cache. So any any column or column segments that are heavily used will stay in memory.
0: Yep. No, that's great. And so yeah, so the thing is, uh, the the real uh, the, the main thing with the column store archive is nothing to do with what fits in memory and things like that. It's just more a case of how much space does it occupy on the drive. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, that that's awesome. And so, listen. Uh, probably the the last few things is I just love your thoughts on just generally where you think industry is heading in this sort of direction.
1: <laughs> it's very hard to say. I mean, we are now in the midst, yeah. We're now in the midst of, of uh, what I would say creating a new generation of database systems mm. because things have changed so rapid, radically that we cannot stay with the old architecture that we uh, did for many years. Yeah, and you're seeing a, a proliferation of of specialized engines. I mean, you have these specialized Mm. engine in main memory database engines, you have these specialized column stores, uh, key value stores, and so on. Yeah. Um, The question of course is what's going to happen well the first of course is if you have a specialized engine yes you can run some applications faster than you can on a general system mm-hmm. there's no question about that but uh, what we've done with SQL Server is, we said well the product remains but we're going to build in the, these specialized engines Mm. So we can we can cover a very broad class of uh, of applications with those specific engines that we have because customers really don't want to have multiple products to deal with. Mm.
0: Indeed, actually one thing too is that in the currently shipping product as well now, uh, there's also a tool that allows you to sort of assess whether or not tables uh, might be good candidates for going across to in-memory Exactly, and yeah, I'm just wondering how effective do you think that tool is, and what sort of things does it specifically look for?
1: It's not a tool that I'm uh, totally familiar with, mm-hmm. but uh, it, um, it 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 it's not perfect. There's yep. no question about that. But it looks first for tables that are uh, heavily accessed and are yep. or reasonable size, so you can put them in memory. Hmm. That's really what it's looking for first by analyzing the.
0: Ah, oh, that's setup. the point because currently we also have a limit on the on the size too. That's right. Which I think at shipping was that 256, two fifty six the size. It's two
1: fifty six for for this release. We yep. wanted to go out carefully because mm-hmm. there are uh, there are some parts where we know that we have bottlenecks that we haven't Mm. uh, been able to address in this particular version. One, for example, is the log. Mm. Um, So going with, uh, say, a two terabyte uh, in-memory database felt too risky.
0: Yeah, (laughs) indeed. (laughs) And look, uh, that'll come though. I mean, those things will oh, come We'll sure. we'll, we'll, re- track, re-
1: yeah. we'll, re- we'll increase those limits uh, as, mm. as as we gain more confidence and uh, have addressed some of the bottlenecks that we know exist, and so on. So yes, mm. as quickly as we can, but they will definitely go up. Again, you think remember, is, oh, remember now it says only two fifty six. Well, that's not your whole database. That's just yeah, hot tables. Yeah, the hot yeah. tables. Yeah. No, that's awesome.
0: The um, I suppose one of the other things, too, at least this architecture probably is much more scalable as the number of processors go up, or the number of cores in the processors.
1: Well, that's what it is designed to be. It's designed yep. for, for speed and scalability.
0: Mm. Yeah, I noticed that uh, even Intel, I think we're talking about things like 60 and 80 core uh, commonplace procs in the next year or so. so uh, yeah, it'll be sort of interesting to see how that, that sort of thing scales up.
1: Well, we'll have to see how quickly they increase the number of cores. There's lots of issues mm. related to that. But yes, I mean twenty-five cores per socket will probably be mm. in the not too distant future. Are we gonna see eighty? I don't know. I don't
0: Yeah, know. I think I think they might have been optimistic, <laughs> but yes. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, it, it's certainly a big trend. Actually, I think this is also going to be interesting that a lot of uh, the servers that have uh, been put out at the moment, the amount of memory tends to be fairly limited. But I notice the newer servers are certainly providing much more capability to have larger amounts of memory now. And so I think it's going to be really, really important going forward to yeah to be able to get servers that have quite large amounts of memory.
1: You can, and uh, and at a surprisingly affordable price.
0: Mm.
1: So um, somebody, I just. The other day, so a presentation where somebody had had priced out a server with, I think, 32 32 cores and a terabyte of memory on Dell's website, and it came out to $53,000. Yeah, which
0: is amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. I think actually, one of the white papers I was involved with a little while ago was the hardware sizing guide for uh, analysis services, Tabular. Right. And they were saying to us, do you think it's okay to suggest? You know, a starting point of like a terabyte of memory for the servers, and my first reaction was, "Wow, that sounds like quite a bit." But um, yeah, I I think going forward, that sort of thing will start to become more and more common. Oh yes, oh yes. No, that's awesome. And so, listen, uh, thank you so very much for your time today, Paul. That's just amazing insights into things. And uh, are there any sort of? uh, I suppose I noticed there you've got white papers. I've read a couple of those uh, papers up on your. Website, which I'll put a link uh, into in the show notes, and uh, just anywhere else that people would happen to see you or hear you coming up, or uh, or just follow with interest uh, what your writings.
1: Well, I guess I'm uh, one of the backroom guys, but I don't show up on the front very often.
0: (laughs) No, that's great.
1: But yes. the uh, the papers that we uh, written on hackathons there's two two papers that I've been involved and also mm. two papers on the column store index that's the best way to uh, to get information yeah
0: yeah that's what I, I read through that I thought that yeah it was is an excellent lot of insights into what was going on there that's great yep. yeah I'll put a link I'll put a link to those in the in the materials mm-hmm. and so listen uh, again so thanks so very much for your time today thank you my pleasure all good